What do you think of when you hear the word compromise? Do you think of it as a good thing or a bad thing? You see, the word can have both good and bad connotations. To say it another way, the term can be used in a positive way or a negative way. For example, compromise is a good thing when it comes to learning to work together or learning to work with other people. Being willing to be a team player and not demand your way is a very important virtue and character trait in life. Maybe you've had the awful experience of trying to work with someone or get along with someone who has to have things his way. That is extremely frustrating and discouraging. By contrast, what a joy it is to have a relationship with someone who is willing to give or relinquish instead of demanding his way. So compromise in that sense is a good thing. But there is a bad side or a bad kind of compromise, and that is when we bow to pressure to do wrong or sacrifice good convictions. In other words, when a person makes a choice to do something or say something that is wrong because of peer pressure or some other kind of pressure, that is a bad kind of compromise. So you see, compromise can be a positive trait or a negative choice depending on the specifics of a given situation. In our text for this morning, the Apostle Paul explains why he wouldn't compromise when it came to the issue of the gospel message. He refused to compromise, and it was the right choice, not a bullheaded decision. Let's turn together to Galatians chapter 2 as we continue our trek through this epistle written by Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 2. I'm actually going to back up and begin reading in chapter 1, verse 11, so that we have the full context in our minds, though our text will be chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. But let's back up and begin reading in chapter 1, verse 11. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, 
which were in Christ. But they were hearing only, He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. Then after fourteen years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who are of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. As I was preparing this message, I was reading a book titled Talking Doctrine. Talking Doctrine. And the subtitle is Mormons and Evangelicals in Conversation. As you can probably tell from the subtitle, the book is about Mormon scholars and evangelical scholars discussing doctrinal differences and what we supposedly have in common. It's the last part of that statement that should be troubling to you if you really understand the huge differences between the gospel of the Mormon church and the gospel of Scripture. The gospel of the Mormon church is salvation by faith and works. But the gospel of Scripture is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Those two gospel messages are on different planets. Those two gospel messages are in different universes. In light of that fact, it was disturbing to read the closing words of a chapter in the book titled, How Many Gods, written by Dr. Craig Blomberg. He says this, and I quote, Meanwhile, both groups in our dialogue continue to sense that God is doing something in our midst. At the very least, there is a greater mutual understanding and the ability to more accurately represent one another. There is the recurring sense that there is absolutely no need to vilify one another and that God's Spirit is working, even mysteriously, in each community, bringing us closer together personally, but also doctrinally. We pray these trajectories 
continue. End quote. When I read that, I couldn't help but think about the contrast between those words and what we have been learning from the letter of Galatians. Do you remember what Paul said in chapter 1, verse 8? He says, But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be damned. How do you think Paul would have felt about the view that says, quote, God's Spirit is working even mysteriously in each community, bringing us together personally but also doctrinally? We don't have to guess what Paul's opinion would be because the Spirit of God has preserved it for us with these words here in verses 8 and 9. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should be rude or ill-mannered when talking with people in the Mormon religion or in any religion. But being a gracious person doesn't mean that you compromise something as utterly important as the gospel. Paul rightly refused to compromise. He wrote this letter because the Galatians were beginning to compromise. They had heard the gospel from Paul. The gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And they seemed to have embraced it. Then a group of teachers called the Judaizers came along and told them that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. But it's not only by grace through faith in Christ. The Judaizers taught that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ plus obeying the commands of the Old Testament and especially the command of circumcision. Try to think about how convincing their message would have sounded. They could point back to the Old Testament to show how important the Ten Commandments were to God. They could show how God made a covenant with Abraham and told Abraham that circumcision was the sign of the covenant. They could turn to Exodus 4 to show how God almost killed Moses for not circumcising his son, which emphasizes the seriousness of the sign that God has, had prescribed. So it's easy to understand how convincing their message would have sounded but it was wrong, dead wrong. Therefore, Paul wrote this letter to defend the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. Back in that day, the Judaizers wanted to add circumcision, or keeping the law, to the gospel message. Today, people want to add baptism or other religious works to the gospel message. Just like the Judaizers, they will turn to passages of Scripture that emphasize the importance of baptism or passages of Scripture that emphasize the importance of works. And there are those passages. Baptism is a serious matter in the New Testament, clearly. 
Obedience is clearly a serious matter in the New Testament. Living a life of good works is clearly a serious matter in the New Testament. But when you make those things a condition of salvation, you come under the condemnation of chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. That is why Paul refused to compromise, and that's why he takes so much time here in the early part of this letter to emphasize the point that he did not receive his gospel message from men. He received it directly from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is not something Paul invented, and it's not something he received from other men, even the other apostles. It was the message given to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. As we've seen over the last couple of messages, Paul is very personal in this opening section of his letter to the Galatians. He does this because the group that was troubling the Galatians was seeking to discredit Paul himself and his message by accusing Paul of simply making up his gospel message. That's why Paul wrote this section of the letter that we just read a moment ago, chapter 1, verse 11 through chapter 2, verse 10. He wanted to make it clear that the gospel that was being propagated by the Judaizers was no gospel at all, and that his message wasn't one he invented. He didn't receive it from man. He wasn't taught it by man. He didn't even receive it from an angel. He received it directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. So after denouncing the supposed gospel that was being propagated by the Judaizers, which is what Paul does in verses 7 through 9 of chapter 1, Paul explains that he got his message through divine revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's gospel message came directly from Christ, and Paul received that message after he had spent time trying to destroy it early in his life. Furthermore, Paul explains in this section that when he was saved and commissioned by the Lord, he didn't go to Jerusalem to be affirmed or instructed by the other apostles. His, his point in saying that was not to put down the other apostles. It sounds like that somewhat in this, this section of the letter when you read what he says. But his point was to emphasize that he didn't get his gospel message from men, even from the other apostles. He got it directly from Jesus Christ himself. He didn't go to Jerusalem to learn what to preach. He didn't go to Jerusalem to learn what to teach. He wasn't instructed by the other apostles. He was instructed by the Lord Jesus during his time in Arabia. So to say it plainly, Jesus gave Paul his message. Jesus gave Paul his doctrine. And once Paul was ready to begin proclaiming that message, he went back to Damascus and began ministering there. He didn't go to Jerusalem to the other apostles to make sure that he had the right gospel message because he didn't need to get confirmation from those godly men. He knew that his gospel was not a human gospel because he knew where he had received it. He had received it directly from Jesus Christ. So he says in verse 18, Then after three years, chapter 1, verse 18, After three years I went up to Jerusalem 
to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. That is an amazing statement when you think about it in the context of the first century. Jerusalem was the hub. I mean, Jerusalem was the capital of Christianity. That's where the church was born on the day of Pentecost as recorded in Acts 2. And yet here in this verse, Paul says he did not go to Jerusalem for three years after he had become a Christian. Three years. And it wasn't that far away. He could have easily made the trip to Jerusalem. After all, he had been there in Acts 8 when Stephen was martyred, and he left there to go persecute believers up in Damascus. So he could have returned there, but his point is he saw no need to go back there. He didn't need to be instructed by the other apostles because he knew already he had the right message since it had come directly from the Lord himself. So he didn't go to Jerusalem until three years after his conversion, and that's when he went to get acquainted with Peter. He stayed there about two weeks, visiting with Peter, but he didn't interact with any of the other apostles. In verse 19, he says, But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. This James was the half-brother of Jesus who was converted after the resurrection of Jesus. He eventually became one of the key leaders in the Jewish church in Jerusalem, as we see in Acts 15, Acts 21. So when Paul eventually went to Jerusalem to make contact with the leaders there, he only spent time with Peter and James. His point is, he did not spend a lot of time there, period, and he didn't interact with a lot of the other apostles. Therefore, he did not get his message from them, and he didn't get his commissioning from them. He got his message and his commissioning directly from Jesus himself. As you can imagine, that claim could easily sound prideful, arrogant, or even dishonest. That's why Paul made the next statement, verse 20, Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. It's very likely that the Judaizers accused Paul of being a liar, which would explain why he made such a strong statement here. He affirms before God. He's telling the truth about all these details. He says in verse 21, Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. The region of Syria was where the town of Antioch was located, which eventually became the launching pad for Paul's missionary journeys. Cilicia was where Paul's hometown of Tarsus was located. So Paul eventually went back to his hometown region to tell about what had happened to him and to share his message. And he says in verse 22, And I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. Judea, remember, is in the southern part of Israel, where the capital city of Jerusalem is located. And Paul says here that the believers in Judea, all the believers in the, uh, the, the assemblies there in Judea, couldn't even recognize Paul by face. And that is because he didn't spend any time there. And remember his point. He's rehearsing all of this history to make the point that he did not get his message and his commissioning from the other apostles or actually from any human source. He got his message and his commissioning directly from Jesus Christ. He didn't get it from the hub. He didn't get it from the capital. He didn't get it from the mother church because he didn't even spend enough time there to be known by the believers by face. He says in verse 23, 
but they were hearing only. He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. Paul was known in Judea by reputation. He had quite a reputation, but he wasn't known by face. He wasn't known by face because he barely spent any time in Judea after he had become a Christian, which means he could not have received his message and his commissioning from the other apostles. However, even though he didn't receive his message from the other apostles, they did agree with his message. And that's the significance of the last verse in chapter 1, and they glorified God in me. The fact that the other apostles and believers in Judea praised God or glorified God because of Paul was proof that the message that Paul preached was the same message the other apostles had proclaimed in Judea. Their gospel and his gospel was the same gospel because there's only one gospel. There's only one message of good news, and that is the message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that was the message proclaimed by Paul as well as all the other apostles, which is the theme of the first ten verses of chapter 2. Paul wants to make it clear that the gospel he proclaimed was identical to that of the other twelve apostles. In verse 1 he says, Then after fourteen years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. This is a reference to Paul's second trip to Jerusalem after becoming a Christian. The book of Acts mentions five Jerusalem visits made by Paul after his conversion. This second one is often called by scholars the famine visit because at that time a prophet named Agabus predicted a great famine and as a result believers gave financially to assist others and commissioned Paul and Barnabas to be the ones to distribute the money. Most of this financial assistance came from Gentile believers who wanted to give so that the Judean believers, Jewish believers, would know of their love for them. All that is recorded in Acts eleven twenty-seven to 30. So Paul went there to discuss the issue of Gentile salvation to solidify the fact that Gentiles don't have to be circumcised or keep the law of Moses to be saved. That issue would be formally and officially and publicly addressed at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. But even before that council, Paul had privately discussed the issue with James, Peter, and John. Wouldn't you have loved to be a part of that conversation? Or at least just sit and listen to it. Verse 2, Paul says, And I went up by revelation... And communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who are of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Notice here in this verse that Paul says he went up by revelation. In other words, Paul went to Jerusalem because the Lord directed him to go to Jerusalem, not because, and here's probably what the Judaizers were saying, he didn't go there because he was called on the carpet by the other apostles for the gospel message he was preaching. I could just hear the Judaizers saying, oh yeah, the other apostles, they called Paul. They summoned him 
It's because they were going to call him on the carpet for what he was saying out there in the Gentile world. So Paul says, no, I didn't go up there because I was called on the carpet. I went to Jerusalem because of revelation, because the Lord told me to go there. He wanted to make sure when he went there that the message he had received from the Lord and was preaching, and the message he was preaching among the Gentiles was not being resisted or contradicted or undermined by the apostles in Jerusalem. If that were happening, and the apostles in Jerusalem were requiring circumcision or law-keeping for the Gentiles, then Paul realized that his labors would have been in vain. You could almost say it this way. Paul checked in with James, Peter, and John to make sure that they had not given in to the pressure of the Judaizers. That would have been easy to do in Jerusalem, in Judea, totally Jewish. It would have been easy to give in, but that would have been a disaster. If the leaders in Jerusalem had compromised the gospel because of the Judaizers, Paul knew how damaging that would have been in undermining the message he had been preaching for 14 years. But thankfully, Paul was assured that his message and the message of the leaders in Jerusalem was the same message. He says in verse 3, he says, Yet not even Titus, who was with me being a Greek or being a Gentile, was compelled to be circumcised. It's possible, very likely, that Paul brought Titus on this trip for the express purpose of seeing if the spiritual leaders in Jerusalem would require Titus to be circumcised. As a Gentile, Titus had not been circumcised as a baby, but he had come to faith in Christ at some point in his life. The fact that the leaders of the church in Jerusalem did not require him to be circumcised was proof that they didn't see circumcision as necessary for salvation. I mean, think about it. It's obvious. If they did see and believe and teach that circumcision is necessary for salvation, then it's obvious that they would have told Titus that he had to be circumcised to complete his salvation. But no such event occurred. Verse 4, Paul says, And this occurred, that is, this meeting, all of this stuff occurred, because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth, to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. In other words, all this meeting and deliberation was necessary because of the Judaizers who were pressuring the Gentile believers to be circumcised. Their message is recorded in Acts 15.1, which states their view in this way, direct quote. Here's the direct quote. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. That had become a very popular view in and around Jerusalem, which was populated by Jewish people. Now, it's totally understandable that the Jewish people held circumcision in high esteem since it was the sign of the covenant God gave to Abraham. It's understandable that they would see it as a big deal, but making it a condition for salvation contradicts the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It imposes something that God himself does not impose in the gospel. It adds a requirement or a law 
that ends up perverting the liberty of the gospel and results in bondage, as Paul says at the end of this verse. Therefore, Paul and the other apostles in Jerusalem refused to compromise and go along with that message even for a minute. They gave no ground whatsoever. He says in verse 5, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Paul, we would say it this way, Paul wouldn't give an inch on this matter. Now, it's not that Paul was obstinate and stubborn and just wanted things his way. No, the issue at stake is the truth of the gospel. The issue at stake is the eternal destiny of lost men and women. You see, beloved, please understand this. Please hear this. When you teach people that salvation is by faith in Christ plus circumcision, or you teach that salvation is by faith in Christ plus baptism, or whatever it is, what always happens, and mark this well, what always happens is that people get the message that salvation is by circumcision, or it is by baptism. Because of the tendency of the human heart, people just want to know what hoop they need to jump through or what requirement they need to check off in order to be saved. When they hear that salvation is by faith in Christ plus circumcision or salvation is by faith in Christ plus baptism, they will gladly do that so they can check it off their list and move on assuming they are saved. Only the Lord himself knows how many people will end up in hell because they have been told a misleading gospel message. When they hear that salvation is by faith in Christ plus something, whatever it is, they will jump right to the plus to check it off their list. This was driven home to me many years ago, actually back when the first, the very first Gulf War broke out there in the Middle East. I had a young gal come to me, walked into my office. I didn't know her. She said, Pastor, I need to be baptized. And I said, well, that's great. I'm, I'm glad you're interested. Why don't you tell me your story? What, what brought you in here? Why do you want to get baptized? She said, well, the, the Persian Gulf War, as you know, has broken out, and it's all that was on the news. She said, I think this is leading to Armageddon and the end of the world, and I need to get baptized. I said, oh, so you think that if you get baptized, then you'll be ready for the end of the world? Yes. And I said, no, you won't. You, you, you need Christ. You need to know Christ. So I talked through the gospel and said, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. You, if you know Christ, then baptism is, is a very important step. It's, it is important, but you need to know Christ. Well, she wouldn't hear it. I want to get baptized. I, I, I wouldn't baptize her. So she went to another church in the valley that teaches salvation by faith in Christ plus baptism, and they gladly baptized her. And she left there thinking she was fine. And interestingly, I found out eventually that she happened to work with some people at a department store with some people from our church, and they said to me, oh, it's so good you didn't baptize her because she thinks she's fine, but her life has not changed one bit. There's no evidence whatsoever she knows Christ but she thought she was fine because she could check it off the list. I've been baptized. Or in the first century, I was circumcised. It's tragic. It's eternally 
it, it's eternally tragic. So Paul says that he would not yield for a moment. The issue at stake was too important. And Paul wasn't concerned that the other apostles in Jerusalem were going to disagree with him. He, didn't, he really wasn't worried about that. He says in verse 6, But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows no personal favoritism to man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. This could easily sound harsh or prideful by Paul, but that wasn't his intention at all. He's simply saying that these prominent leaders in Jerusalem did not add anything to his understanding of the gospel because, as he said earlier, he received his gospel directly from the Lord. So why would he need to have it supplemented by anyone, even prominent apostles in Jerusalem? He didn't need to have it supplemented, and he didn't need to have any clarification. The other apostles, as much as he appreciated them and respected them, didn't add anything to his understanding of the gospel. The gospel that he preached to the Gentiles was the same as the gospel that Peter preached to the Jews. They each had a different focus group, but they had the same message, which is what Paul states in the following verses. He says in verse 7, But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised, that's just a term that Jews use to refer to Gentiles, so you could just say Gentiles, the gospel for the Gentiles had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter. The way this is worded almost sounds like there were two gospels, one for the Gentile and one for the Jew, but that's not what Paul is saying. He's simply saying that he had been appointed by the Lord to be a messenger primarily to Gentiles, and Peter's ministry was primarily to Jewish people. And that becomes clear in the next verse. He says in verse 8, For he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised, that is to Jews, also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. Peter was commissioned by the Lord to primarily preach among the Jewish people. And Paul was commissioned by the Lord as the apostle to the Gentiles. That's one of the reasons why so many Christians today, and as you know, I'm sure the vast majority of believers on planet earth are Gentile today. And it's one of the reasons why so many believers today have such a love for and affinity toward Paul. Generally speaking, his letters are easier for us to understand because they were written with Gentiles in mind and oftentimes with Gentiles as the focus. My guess is that most of us here began our Christian life, began our Christian walk by studying Ephesians or Philippians or Colossians or Romans. That's just the typical pattern. All those letters were written by Paul. He is uniquely our apostle as Gentiles, just as Peter was uniquely appointed as an apostle among the Jews. But the key point is that their message was the same. The gospel preached by Paul and the gospel preached by Peter was salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There was no competition between Paul and Peter, nor with any of the other apostles. Rather than competition, there was complete support for one another. In verse 9, Paul says, And when James, Cephas, and John, 
who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me. They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, that is, to the Jews. The Cephas mentioned here in this verse is, of course, the apostle Peter. Cephas is Aramaic. Peter is Greek, same name, just different languages. So here Paul says, Peter, as well as James, who was the Lord's half-brother, and the apostle John, all three extended the right hand of fellowship to Paul and Barnabas. That was an indication of agreement and trust and endorsement. The spiritual leaders in the Jerusalem church, Jewish church, ministering in a Jewish context, they fully agreed with the gospel message that Paul preached because it was the same message they preached, which was the message given to, given to Paul by the Lord himself. It was the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the only gospel message which is why the spiritual leaders in Jerusalem didn't ask Paul to change his message whatsoever. The only thing they did ask him to do was to make sure to continue supporting the poor. And remember, this is primarily poor Jewish people because the famine hit Israel hardest. So these Gentile believers from around the Gentile Roman world were giving money for Jewish people, especially the Jewish believers, but Jewish people in general. So they said, just, Paul, your message is right on. Your ministry is right on out there among the, the Gentiles in the Roman world. So keep preaching that message. But one thing we ask, just continue supporting the poor along with your ministry of preaching the gospel. And he says in verse 10, they desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. Remember, it was a concern for the poor that either prompted Paul to go to Jerusalem on his second visit or it arose while he was there in Jerusalem. It's called the famine visit because it sort of centered around that. That's why he and Barnabas were appointed as the ones to distribute this support money that had been given by the believers, Gentile believers in the Roman world. So the spiritual leaders in Jerusalem asked Paul to make sure that he didn't forget about that aspect of his ministry in the midst of his crucial ministry of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul's response was that this was something that was already a priority for him, even before the leaders in Jerusalem asked him to make it a priority. Paul cared about human suffering. Paul cared about human need. And listen, Paul cared about Jewish people. He was Jewish. He says in Romans, I... You know, I, I could wish myself a curse from Christ if my kinsmen would be saved. So he loved the Jewish people. It's just that God had called him to the Gentiles. And he saw this kind of financial ministry as an opportunity to promote unity among the two groups. As the Gentile Christians gave support that was taken back to the Jewish believers, it often created a bond between them that fleshed out the reality of the oneness in Christ. So Paul was eager to fulfill that ministry along with his ministry of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Now here's the question that we need to ask and answer. Why has Paul taken so much time in an inspired letter? You would think, now hold it, this is a lot of chronology and history. I mean, why isn't he writing doctrine? This is an inspired letter. Why has Paul taken so much time 
to delineate all of this autobiographical and chronological information? Here's the answer. Because he wants to demonstrate and prove that his gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is the true gospel. He didn't receive it from men, even the other apostles. He didn't receive it from an angel. He didn't invent it on his own. It's the same. It's the, the, the message he received directly from Jesus Christ, and it's the same message Jesus had given to his apostles who were with him throughout his ministry. It's the same message Peter preached among the Jews. It's the message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the, that's the only message that saves. So I ask you, have you embraced it? Have you embraced it? What are you trusting in for your eternal destiny? Is it Jesus plus and if it is Jesus plus, then I can almost guarantee you it's not Jesus plus, it's the plus. That's what you're trusting in, the plus, and not in Christ and Christ alone. Let's bow together as we close. Again, I ask you one final time in closing, what are you trusting in for your eternal destiny? Is it Christ and Christ alone? That message, that point is eternally significant. Which is why the Holy Spirit of God prompted Paul to write all of this autobiographical and historical information to prove and demonstrate that his gospel message is the true gospel message. Have you embraced the gospel? Or have you been fed a different gospel? It's easy for that to happen in our day and age. It's everywhere. A supposed gospel message that really is no gospel at all because it takes Christ and puts him subservient to something else or on an equal plane with something else, which is tragic. If there's any doubt in your heart where you stand, eternally. Turn to Christ. Call out to Christ like the man of whom Jesus told in the Gospel of Luke who was so broken, so humbled that he wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven but simply said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He called out to the Lord for salvation. And Jesus said that man went home justified. He went home right with God. You can leave here right with God if you will turn to and trust in Christ alone. Father, again, we thank you for the gospel because it strips us of our own human effort. It strips us of our pride. It humbles us to where we have to let go of whatever we're holding on to in our hands and just with an open hand simply receive Christ. Oh, how we long for that to be the case in the life of every person gathered here and every person hearing these words right now. May your Holy Spirit do whatever is necessary to bring that man or woman to that place in life where he or she will let go of 
whether it's sin or religion, let go of whatever's in the way and simply embrace Christ in whose precious and exalted name we pray. Amen.